A Polar Voices Perspective with Craig Gerlach. This is Craig Gerlach, and um, I'm at the University of Calgary now in Alberta as the Coordinator Director of Sustainability Science, and I'm a professor in anthropology, but I work cross-disciplinary contexts with medical school, vet school, geography, multiple departments. But the last 22 years, I've been at the University of Alaska developing programs in sustainable food systems, sustainable agriculture, um, dealing with global environmental change, and primarily with rural communities and how they're responding to both ecological change and socioeconomic change as well. I have a degree in anthropology, but I'm not really a normal anthropologist because um, I, I really work with agricultural scientists, geographers, hydrologists uh, across the disciplines and so I don't really know what I am at this point um, in terms of a discipline hopefully nothing in a disciplinary context but we've been doing work primarily with NOAA National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration grants for about 15 years on up and down the Yukon River watershed and now on the coast down in Kotzebue Sound, but we've been working on um, a variety of things, putting in, working with people locally to, to develop community gardens and working with people to think about how to design greenhouses, alternative energy sources to reduce their dependence on diesel, how they can innovate in, in ways that will allow the communities to be healthy. One of the challenges with Alaska Native communities is that those systems, especially upriver where there's not a lot of country food available in the first place, and now it's very expensive to get to because of the price of fuel. Um, in the past, they would just move someplace different where the resources were. You know, if they're not here, folks would move there. But now they live in permanent villages. And so that flexibility to respond to change has been significantly reduced. So people that I work with up and down the Yukon River watershed and on the coast are thinking about what can we do as a community to increase our, you could use the word resilience, or um, increase our capacity, our ability to move forward in healthy ways. Oh, I've worked in all of the Yukon Flats villages. I've worked as far downriver on the Yukon as Tanana. We've done a lot of climate change work, how people are perceiving climate change, and how really more to the point than climate change, we've been working with extreme events, flooding, storms, how people are coping with that, and how it's affecting their villages. The new project is um, looking at the impact of, of weather which is different from climate. You know, people don't have to deal with climate in, if they're in the villages, but weather really matters because that's what happens today. So we've been putting together a series of films that, based on the work Sarah did, from May till late October, and um, capturing their local perspectives on both historical extreme events, flooding, um, how changes in seasonality, uh, snowfall, precipitation have affected their travel. This year, for example, on the Kobuk River, or Caribou were two almost two months late 
incoming and that that created a real insecurity on the part of people with respect to food you know the salmon harvest was not as good as usual and you know fish for all northern communities are really what I always call the, the corn of the north they're if you've got fish and you can store them they're nutritious you know they have have been in the past relatively predictable you know so if, if the fish are down and caribou or moose are difficult to harvest any country foods it, if you're using all your money to buy fuel at ten dollars a gallon that creates a lot of food system problems you know for people so we've been doing interviews and and trying to vi capture all this in a visual way which is is the work Sarah's done is brilliant on that because we're producing a series of films for use in the villages and also there's another component to all this and it has to do with industrial development you know that hasn't happened yet off Kotzebue Sound but um, it's certainly in the works to do offshore oil and gas development and that's a very complex little ecological system that even a small oil spill would pretty much devastate the system because you know you got Kotzebue Sound then you've got Kobuk Lake, Kobuk River, Noatak, it's all tied together and even a small spill would make a major impact and any spill makes an impact but the other thing is the Red Dog Mine you know has been kind of in the context of trade-offs there because they've employed a lot of local people which has created job opportunities but by the same token, they've not been very kind to the Woolick River, which is a major Arctic char fishery and has a big impact on Kivalina, which is also being severely eroded. You know, so coastal erosion, flooding, all these extreme events intersect with industrial development and um, the socioeconomic price of fuel to create a, real problems that the villagers are, are trying to figure out how to cope with. And, and I think that's where the innovation part comes in. You know, we could say we're working on food or we're working on this or that, but we're really working at the intersection of food, water, energy, and health, where those come together. You know, and those are really complex problems that need complex solutions. And that's why at the beginning I said I don't really align myself with any one discipline because no discipline has the answer to that kind of a complex problem. It takes a number of collaborators from different disciplines to help work lo with local people to design solutions that are place-based and culturally appropriate. People in the villages that I work with, this is going to sound wrong, but they really don't want to hear about climate change anymore because they know the climate's changing. I remember one elder told me one time, um, he said, he said, I don't want scientists to come out here anymore and talk to me about climate change. I know the climate's changing. He said, they can design experiments and it, if they fail, they just walk away from them. He said, every day when we go to harvest food from the country, traditional foods, that's an experiment. And if, if we fail, we just die. And so, but, but they are very interested in weather and how weather's affecting the food system, you know, the distribution of resources, the availability of subsistence resources, and also village infrastructure. 
so they want to talk about weather. When, when scientists you know, show a lot of graphs about directional temperature changes, those are global. It depends on, I mean, there are people in the villages who are interested in that, but what really matters to them is what's happening locally and regionally. And that, that scales down to weather. And there's, of course, a linkage between weather and climate, but that becomes more theoretical and of less practical interest. You know, and this is just my perspective from what I hear in, in talking to people, but they are very interested in National Weather Service, for example, forecasting every day people listen to the radio or they get weather information in different ways and we're trying to improve ways to the forecasting part that's that's a different science but ways to communicate that information to people so that they can use it because they'll make decisions based on the forecast about whether they go out to harvest or not you know so they use their own local knowledge and their own judgment in combination with what they hear from the National Weather Service to make those decisions. So weather is really what people talk to me the most about. It, and they've said that we know the climate's changing. You know, they may not know the, the, the biogeochemistry of it or the science, but they know it's changing. But how do they respond to it? How do they work with it? There's another piece that intersects with all this, and that's the regulatory framework for how we manage fisheries, for example, in Alaska. Because of international treaty obligations, we have to allow a certain escapement into Canada. So, you know, the Department of Fish and Game counts fish way downriver, and they do the best job you could possibly do because they've got to make decisions in season relative to what's required by law with escapement. But if they're counting fish at Pilot Station, for example, and then making a decision about whether or not to close the fishery, Everybody, if they close it, everybody upriver goes without fish. And, you know, the, the moose population density for the Yukon Flats, for example, is about two moose per square mile. They're very unpredictable now because of changing seasons in terms of where you're going to find them. Like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, we could go from, from the village to pretty much to know exactly where you could get a, a moose. They were down out of the hills. But that didn't happen anymore. The last five years, there's been a lot of hunting by boat, and and li I mean literally hunting, trying to find moose. You know, and when you're paying ten dollars a gallon for fuel, it becomes a real problem for people to, especially if if the harvest fails because the moose are not there. So, a fisheries closure will have a big impact on the food system and food security, um, and the socioeconomic part of, of the costs of getting moose with a regulated moose season that's inconsistent you know, with the seasons creates another set of problems that people have to cope with. Because the, the, the season is closes now with, with the rut and the moose are there when they're not legal to hunt. You know, warmer falls. The other thing I would add to that is that I'm making a lot of generalizations here, and there's so much interannual variability from year to year. Like 2009 on the Yukon River, for example, was that was a big, big year. The fishery was closed down entirely, and so people got they had no fish. And then in 2010, I was back out in Fort Yukon upriver, and that year there were major flood events. 
and so we couldn't fish that year either not because of the regulatory framework but because of ecological reasons so they had this back-to-back kind of a food system catastrophe one was regulatory and political the other was ecological and so the changes from year to year that interannual change yearly change is another area of interest that the people in the villages are really concerned about and want to know more about and I think that's a place where the scientific community could scale down from the, the global climate models to what's happening on the ground at the local level. This has been a Polar Voices Perspective with Craig Gerlach of the University of Calgary. You can find full episodes of Polar Voices and other featured perspectives at thepolarhub.org. Podcasts of episodes are also available through iTunes.